introduction of who Jesus is. The king is coming, and, and now he has uh, been introduced. He has been, he has been confirmed. He has been tested. And we saw last week as he began his ministry and he called his disciples to follow him. And we had a great discussion Sunday night, last Sunday night, uh, about discipleship and discipling. And I, I really enjoyed uh, what we, what we, what I got out of that as we, as we studied it and then as we discussed it. And this morning, uh, we, we kind of see a little bit of that theme uh, of discipleship. And as we continue into the chapter, we, we continue to see this theme of being a disciple of Christ and what it means to be one and what it means to make them. And we won't go back into uh, what we looked at last Sunday night in chapter 4, but we will, uh, We will. You, if you were there, you would you'd probably recognize a few themes we read, as Josh read for us in, uh, in the first 12 verses, uh, this is the beginning of the famous sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's not necessarily called that. And uh, Jesus didn't say the title of my sermon today is the Sermon on the Mount. He just started talking and we, we gave it that name. Uh, some have called this uh, his greatest sermon, the magnum opus, uh, if you will. I think that probably all of Jesus' sermons are his greatest sermons. Uh, I don't think Jesus ever preached a bad one. That's what I feel like we're saying when we're saying this was a good one. Jesus spoke like we're saying that actually that was a that was a, that was his best one, and and I don't think that ever happened to Jesus. In this sermon, as we get through it, we only get through the introduction. Really, not even finish the introduction today of the sermon. Uh, we see that uh, Jesus said a lot about the kingdom of heaven. He wrote a lot about that. Much can be said about this sermon. Much has been said about this sermon. Much has been written. In, in an attempt to try to interpret the meaning of this ser- the meaning of what Jesus is saying here, the overall theme, not just of what we're looking at, the Beatitudes today, but the overall theme of his message. In fact, I read there that there, there are there are as few as eight popular or significant interpretations of of the Sermon on the Mount. As few as eight, but there are as many as thirty six. <laughs> there 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 are that many different ideas on this is what it means, and. Uh, it, and as we study through, and if, hopefully it won't come out in the sermon this morning, but uh, there, there is, uh, there's a lot of, uh, well, I think it's this, and I think it's this, and I think it's this, and there's not a lot of, of, uh, of common uh, ground as, as, as scholars and, and people trying to interpret the Scriptures understand. But my, uh, my hope is that we see what, what Christ intended for us. I don't think that we will get everything on the first reading or the second reading or the third reading. And so as we go through it, uh, there will likely be things that we will just have to leave out for sake of time or for uh, just a, a lack of an understanding of the full uh, full meaning and intent of what he's saying there. But today, we're going to begin Jesus' sermon the way that he began his sermon with an introduction to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' sermon is about the kingdom of heaven. And the introduction to his sermon is an introduction of the citizens of of that kingdom. If we look back in verse number one, it says that, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. So this is, it seems to kind of carry on from what happened previously. Uh, and there, Luke has an account that's, that's slightly different from this, and so uh, we'll try to be faithful to just paying attention to what's going on in this text rather than trying to harmonize the two. But Jesus says, uh, has a has sees a, a multitude of people that are that are uh, crowding around him, gathering to him, no doubt because he was healing people, he was teaching, he was saying some incredible 
uh, some fantastic things that they'd never really heard quite that way before, and they, they're just they're just they're enamored with, they're in awe of what he has to say and what he does for the crowds, and so they're just pressing in on him. And notice what Jesus does: seeing the multitudes, he went away from the multitudes. He went up into a mountain, and then it says, and when he was set, or he sat down. This was the custom uh, of the day when a, a teacher was going to teach, he would sit down and explained that. There's a the passage, if you remember, when Jesus uh, uh, read in the synagogue, he read the Scriptures, and then it says, then he sat down. It was They would read them standing, and then they would sit down to teach. And they would, uh, this was this is the the, uh, the signal, if you will, to the disciples, the master, the teacher, is about to expound. He's about to tell us some things. We are very interested in this because they were already followers. They were already his disciples. I don't necessarily think it's it's exclusive to the twelve that we understand at this point. He may not even had all twelve disciples uh, to him. If we're following it chronologically, which I'm not 100 percent sure that that's what's going on, uh, there there's only four that are mentioned at this time. But it says here that he saw the crowds. He walked away from the crowds, hiked up a mountainside. Obviously, some people follow him, and specifically his disciples. When whether that's the Peter, James, John, those guys, or if that's including other people. They're not apostles at this point. They're just disciples. They're just followers of Jesus. And that's not limited necessarily to those 12 men that we call the disciples. But he sat, he sat down and he began to teach. And it's important for us to understand, to understand what Jesus is trying to say here. It's important for us to understand the, the target audience of the message. To whom is Jesus trying to get this message who is he? Who is he preaching to? Who is he teaching the, uh, at, this, at this time? And there, and it's important to understand what's going on in verse number one because that kind of gives us an idea of what he's of who, to whom he's speaking. Because there were multitudes there, but Jesus is not necessarily interested in the crowds. He's interested in the followers, in the disciples. And so I almost see this as a bit of a test. All right, here you all are. I'm going up the mountain. If you want to hear what I have to say, you can follow me. And as he sat down, then it says his disciples uh, gather in. And it says in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught. And it's important, as I said, for us to remember that this message is intended for Jesus' disciples. This is not a universal message to anybody who wants to find out how to have a blessed life or how to have a happy life or for any of the other things that he is going to mention. This is a message for the followers of Jesus. There's been a lot of confusion and even misinterpretation of Jesus' words. Throughout history, there have been some who have tried to isolate the message from the, from the speaker, from Christ, and focus on the emphasis that the message has of good works and peaceful existence in some sort of attempt to, a, uh, uh, to establish a utopian society. Others see it as a, a sort of a laundry list of things they need to do to, uh, to gain eternal life, and they, they take it the other direction and try to focus on these things in order to have a spiritual life. Others, as I said, they try to uh, they focus only on the world or the, 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 the physical, the worldly, temporary life. But Jesus' message is not a list for people outside of Christ to earn favor with God, nor does it apply to them in the way that they think. If, if really, if we, if, we, if we read this with a human perspective, outside of Christ, much of what Jesus says, even in just these first 12 verses, don't make a lot of sense. Think about it. He says here uh, in our passage that these first uh, 12 verses are, are, as I said, an introduction to the whole sermon. And they share a common theme. They're what's known as the Beatitudes. It's just a Latin word because they all start with the the blessed, 
self-esteem. Uh, they, they are, they are uh, blessed means happy. And so as I said, some people will treat this as a shopping list or a laundry list of things that they need to do in order to be happy. But if that's really what Jesus was getting at, then think about what he's saying. If you want to be happy, you need to mourn. That's the exact opposite of being happy. If you want to be happy, you need to be persecuted. If you want to be happy, you need to be poor. You know, that doesn't make a lot of sense if we, if we remove Christ from the, from the picture. If we, if we try to take it from a worldly perspective, that makes total uh, nonsense. Uh, there, there, is, there is absolutely nothing to be gained and I begin to pick apart and say, well, okay, I guess how making peace would make, make me happy. And I guess how uh, maybe uh, desiring righteousness would make me happy. And so I can begin to pick and pull things out. But Jesus did not say anything that was wasted. He didn't say anything that, that was not necessary. So if we're going to understand what he's really trying to say to us, then we have to understand it as a whole. Apart from Christ, uh, this message won't make any sense. The message goes deeper than simply being happy. First of all, well, I already said this here, but the, first of all, that the list deals with negative life circumstances that seem to lead us away from happiness. And, and as I said, from a human perspective, this doesn't make any sense. To get a real understanding, a sense of what he's teaching, that's why I said it's important that we understand to whom he is speaking. To whom is he communicating this message? Is it a group of people that have never heard the message of Christ and, they, and he wants them to find out about himself? Or is it to people who are already following him and he is, and he is uh, imparting this wisdom to those people? And the more we understand that, the clearer it becomes that Jesus is teaching us more than simply how to have a happy life. Now, I want to have a happy life, and I think you want to have a happy life. And if we could, we would choose only the days of our lives that are happy and, and, and fun and exciting and the good days and not the bad days. But that's not what Jesus is going to get at. In fact, the very first one he mentions here starts off negatively. I, I began making little lists this week of, of the different, uh, of the different uh, how we could categorize these lists, and I think over the majority of the things in here can be seen in negative context. And so if we're going to try to take this away from what Jesus, what Jesus is saying, it's not going to make any sense to us. So don't look at this simply as, I want to be happy, so I'm going to do these things. Now, we don't know exactly who was in the crowd that day. It doesn't tell us, just that they were disciples. But if they were anything like the people that Jesus would uh, later gather to himself, we get a bit of an idea of who might have been there. We can assume that they were regular folks. Jesus gathered to himself blue-collar type people. Fishermen, carpenters, regular old people. He gathered to him women and children. People that followed him that had diseases and were rejected for some reason or another. He, he had the, 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 the sinners, the tax collectors, the, the publicans, if you will. He had all those types of people that would gather with him at every other instance in, the, in, the, uh, in his story. Uh, and it's not unlikely that these were the types of people that were there too. Now, it's not impossible that there would have been bankers and lawyers and doctors there present. But I think it's safe to say that the one who was called the friend of sinners had already begun to associate with people of more humble circumstances. Even as Jesus begins to describe these, these people here, I think you'll see that uh, the type of people that were in the audience. When Jesus began teaching here, we read the blessed there, the you could say blessed if you want to, if you need it to you know, work in your song. You have to have an extra beat there. You say blessed, or you just say blessed. Or if you want to sound like you're uh, proper, uh, you're from England and you want to be, you know, 
in the 16th century, you say blessed are, or you can just say blessed like the rest of us. But that's, that's, uh, that's all, all eight or nine of these things are describing a group of people. And he's not listing eight different types of people. He's not saying that there's a people, there's people who mourn, and then there's people who are poor in spirit, and there's people who are hungry. He is describing one group of people who have eight qualities or characteristics. Now, if you're counting, you see, oh, there's nine blessed there. And the last two we're going to kind of put together because they, they, uh, they, they're, they're very, they're very uh, similar to one another. These are both the people that Jesus is speaking to, and they are the people that he is speaking about. They are described as not faring very well on earth, but with great rewards awaiting them in God's kingdom. They are declared to be happy or blessed. Blessed by God. Now one way that you can understand it and make sure that you're not so focused on simply being happy is to read this with an understanding that each time I read the word blessed, I read it as God blesses. So God blesses those who are poor in spirit and God blesses those who mourn and God blesses those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And when I see it from that aspect, it helps to understand a little bit more about what's happening in the Beatitudes. William Hendrickson wrote uh, to introduce this, this uh, passage to us. He wrote that Jesus is stating that though everybody may consider his followers to be most wretched and unfortunate, and though they themselves are by no means always filled with optimism regarding their own condition, in the sight of heaven and by the standards of its kingdom, they are happy indeed. Yes, happy in the most exalted sense of the term. Hence, superlatively blessed. goes a lot further than just simply being happy. Someone bought me a new car, and so I'm happy. Someone took me out for dinner, and I am happy. Uh, I got uh, laid off at my job, and I'm not happy. And I deal with I deal with life, and how's it going? I'm happy, so it's a good day. I'm not happy, so it's a bad day. This goes beyond that, because as we get into this, we see these people are not necessarily having good days, but they're blessed. They're happy in a much deeper sense or a much elevated sense than what we typically view it as. Ultimately, these Beatitudes contain a promise that one day God will right what is wrong today. Someday, God will right everything that today is going wrong. As several people have put it, there's a, there's this, there's a bit of an already but not yet tension happening in these passages. As we read, several of the Beatitudes start off with a present tense uh, condition and there's a promise that, uh, that kind of takes place in the future tense. And we read that on the one hand, it's an acknowledgement of what is the future, uh, I'm sorry, the present reality, but there's also a hope of what will be a future, very different reality. But at the same time, it seems that Jesus is instructing his followers into a certain type of behavior on earth. And as I read through this, I see a bit of a progression and at each stage of this sequence, if you will, or this series, we see God is blessing His people. I'd like to show you that progression this morning. It's not hard and fast, but it is. I think it's, it's pretty obviously there and you don't have to think too hard about it. Now, if you notice each of the Beatitudes, let me just kind of outline each of the Beatitudes for you and to help you to understand there's three parts there. They're in your notes. There are three parts to each of these Beatitudes. We have the designation. That is in the acknowledgement of these people, and that's simply the, the blessed are part. When we read that, any part of it, the blessed are, the, this is the formula for the beatitude. We have the designation, 
the acknowledgement of, of these people, the declaration of what these people are. Then the second part is the description, the, the sketch or the account of the people's condition, their circumstances. This is not the reason why they're blessed. The third part is the deduction. This is the reasoning for the blessing. This is the for and after everything after that. So when we read the beatitude there and it says blessed are so and so for that word for begins the next, the third part. And this is what tells us this is why these people are blessed. So let's look at each one of them. We'll take just a few moments and look at uh, each one of them. I, I probably, if I was a smarter man, I could take a sermon on each one of these and uh, take that, but um, I'm not, and so I will not. Number one is that God blesses the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, Jesus is not speaking here about financial or economic hard times. He's talking about spiritual poverty. It says, Craig Blumberg wrote, this is an acknowledgement of one's spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Christ. To be poor in spirit is to recognize my own deficiency and to recognize Christ's sufficiency. It's to look at myself and realize I am nothing. I am a beggar. In, 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 when I stand before God, I have nothing. I am a, I am a, a, I'm a bankrupt, poverty-stricken beggar. And on my own, I have nothing to offer. I am poor in spirit. Apart from Christ, I have nothing. I am empty. Grant Osborne described it as a humility that leads God's people to depend wholly on Him. By recognizing and admitting my insufficiency, God says then, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For they shall be, I'm sorry, for they shall, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God says that I bless those people who recognize their own deficiency with the kingdom of heaven. God blesses me with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that the one who acknowledges his own insufficiency and looks to God for everything is blessed with a God-given claim to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, God has a place in his kingdom for those who recognize their need for him and trust completely in him completely. It's not for the people that say, I come to the table bringing a little bit, or I come to the table doing it all myself. It's for the people that say, I don't even know why I'm here because I have nothing to bring. As the song says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's nothing I have on my own, and yet I'm standing here completely empty of self and, and, and work and, and, and anything that I have. There's nothing about me that is desirable. There's nothing within me that is worthy or lovable or anything, and yet Jesus uh, says those are the people who are blessed when they realize their own insufficiency and God's sufficiency. And notice that Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is one of the few that does not have a future tense uh, uh, blessed reason, a future tense uh, deduction here. Uh, theirs not will be the kingdom of heaven, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At this point in time, it is granted to us already, yet though not fully realized. And we are not a part of the kingdom of heaven. It's not like, those who are poor in spirit will be a group that's in heaven and there will be other groups, but it's theirs. It belongs, it's theirs and theirs alone for those of us who have seen our insufficiency and our all-sufficiency in Christ. He says, number two, God blesses those who mourn. This is the response to the realization of who I am. When I get past the first part and I realize I am nothing, I am nobody, I am a sinner, 
there's a response. When I truly get that, what I am before God and my condition and what I stand to face because of my condition, the consequences of my sin, when I truly understand that, it's not flippant. It's not, oh well. It's not, I'm going to go party with all my friends in hell. There's a mourning when I really get that this is my, this is my destiny. This is where I'm headed. Were it not for some substitution, someone to come in and save me, someone to come in and take it all from me because on my own I can't do anything, I mourn. And he says there that those who mourn will be comforted. Uh, Hendrickson also wrote here that the mourning of those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, the first beatitude, and are or are presently going to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the fourth beatitude. We'll get to that one in a second. But this is grief over my personal sin and over the consequences of that sin, not just within me, but then as I look around and I see a broken world and I realize what sin has done to this world and I see the family members that are torn apart and I see what sin does in, in people's lives around me and, and even in my own life and my sin has broken me and, 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 and your sin has broken you and sin in general has just broken this world and it is nothing like what God intended it to be at creation. And yet, uh, when, and when I get to that point, I more I grieve over that because it's not what it should be. It's not anything like what it could have been. It's far from it. Mourning here is simply is more than simply being sorry. Remember when you were a kid and you, you hit your brother and your mom said, "Tell your brother sorry," and so you said sorry, but you weren't sorry. You had to say it in a way that convinced mom that you were sorry, even though you weren't sorry. There was a point in, in, uh, in one of our boys' lives when we, they, he came out and said that. Uh, I'm not sorry, though. I said, well, say it. And I said, because I, I made the mistake of saying, you better say sorry and you better mean it. He says, well, what if I don't mean it? I'm like, well, then lie. <laughs> just, just say you're sorry. But true mourning is, is more than just being sorry. But mourning is the expression of when you truly are saddened, grieved over what happens and you express that outwardly. It, it, it doesn't just stay on the inside. Oh, I feel bad for you. You got a flat tire, man. I feel bad for you. Oh, you, you lost your job, and I'm sorry that that happened. You lost a family member. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that happened. But when you really mourn, it's because it's, it's done something more than simply feeling bad about it, and it expresses itself on the outside with mourning and grieving. The blessing then for these people is that God comforts His people. This is part of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61 that the Messiah would bring comfort to those who mourn. When I truly recognize my sinful condition, it should produce a response, not of indifference or pride, but of shame and grief. The third one there, he says, is that God blesses those who are meek. These words, excuse me, are an echo of Psalm 37.11 that says that the meek shall inherit the earth. Our culture doesn't really use the word meek a lot. We sang it, it was mentioned even in one of the songs that we sang this morning. We don't really use that word meek much. And I think that our understanding of the word meek, unless you're in a church setting and you hear that a little bit more often, uh, most of the time it's a skewed idea. We think that we associate meekness and weakness or meekness and shyness. And we, and we, and we see someone, we describe to them someone who is an introvert, someone who doesn't want to talk, someone who doesn't have a backbone or whatever, and we say, well, they're meek. And that's exactly not what, what meekness is all about. The Bible says that Jesus even calls himself, he says, I am meek. It doesn't mean he's weak. The Bible says that Moses was a meek man, one of the meekest in all the earth. 
And that's not a weakness. He was the man that led a million Jews in the desert and put up with them. He was the man that got so mad that he struck a rock and water came out of it. I mean, this guy was not a weak, a little spineless weakling that, 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 that couldn't, they couldn't stand up to anybody. This guy was, this guy was a, 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 both of them, Jesus and Moses, both were leaders of men. Do you think that if Jesus was a little, what we think of meek, a little, you know, a little wimp, that he'd get 12 disciples to follow him? Fishermen? You know, burly men, strong men, and say, follow me, guys. He's like, we're not doing that. No, he's a man. The Bible, there's, there's reading in spots in the New Testament. Jesus, uh, it seems to imply that he kind of, he had to, he had a couple of tussles. He had to get his way out of things. He, he didn't just walk out quietly and peacefully. He had to defend himself. And, 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 and it's, and it, meekness is, is so far different from that. Meekness is a humility. Meekness is gentleness. Meekness is being humbled at my sin and the brokenness in me and in the world and then submitting to God because I realize I'm not enough. Going back to the first, I realize I'm not enough and it breaks me down so much that I mourn over it. I no longer seek my own agenda. I read this illustration this week. I thought I'd never heard of this before. And I'm always a little bit suspicious when I read something for the first time. I want to validate it, make sure it's true. And I looked at it, I found it in several different places. And so I hope that this, that I don't come out, you know, two days from now and find out this is, this is totally not uh, right. But it does sound good, at least. But I think it's, I think it's true. Uh, I mean, this is a, an illustration about meekness. It says that the Greek army would find the wildest horses in the mountains and bring them to be broken in. After months of trading, they sorted the horses into categories. Some were discarded, some broken and made useful for bearing burdens. Some were useful for ordinary duty, and the fewest of all graduated as war horses. When a horse passed the conditioning required for a war horse, its state was described as praus, and that is the Greek word for meek. The war horse had power under authority, strength under control. A war horse never ceased to be determined, strong, and passionate. However, it learned to bring its nature under discipline. It gave up being wild, unruly, out of control, and rebellious. A war horse learned to bring that nature under control. It would now respond to the slightest touch of the rider, stand in the face of cannon fire, thunder into battle, and stop at a whisper. It was now meek. And that's what meek is. It is bringing that, saying, I have a will, but I am surrendering that and submitting to the will of another. And that's what Jesus is saying, that the meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. And as I realize I'm broken, and I realize that brings me that brings me to mourning, and I say, you know what? What I have is not working. My way is not working. My way is broken. My way leads to death, and my way leads to to, to suffering and to try. I don't want my way anymore. Not my will, but thine. That's the that's the that's the attitude that a meek Christian has. And Jesus says that those who lose their own agenda, the meek, have a great inheritance waiting for them. We have to. We have to continue. He says the next one is the blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. God blesses the hungry. God blesses the thirsty. It's describing here a craving, a new craving. Because as I yield to God, understanding what sin has done to me, and, and, and yielding to God's will, it develops a new craving in my life. It's less and less about what I want. It's less and less for the things of this world. And it's more and more about the things of God. It's a hunger and a thirst for what is right. I want what is right. I want what is good and holy and pure. And it's a strong desire. It develops within me a strong desire to live righteously before God. It's a desire for God's rule and His system in my life and in in the world. It's a longing for the God's kingdom to come as Jesus teaches us to pray in just the next chapter over. One of the first things He says to ask in the prayer 
Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. I want God to finally get down here and fix this because I'm tired of the way that I've messed it up. I'm tired of living. As Paul described, he says, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of the struggle. I want to be free from sin. I want to be free from the presence of sin. I don't want to mess up. I'm tired of doing that. I'm tired of disappointing my Savior. I want God's rule in my life. I remember thinking as a kid, why couldn't God just make me a robot so that I always do what I'm supposed to do? And I realized that there's no choice anymore, and and there's no there's no uh, there's no way to show love. God gave me that that uh, He didn't make me a robot. That's what I had to learn. But I, I I wanted it because I don't want to to disappoint my Savior. I don't want to let let sin rule my life. I don't want sin to even get one little one little area of my life. And God promises those people who hunger and thirst after righteousness that you'll be filled, you'll be satisfied. I realize that what Isaiah wrote when that he, he wrote there that I am, I am an unclean thing. He says, all my righteousness is as filthy rags. And when I understand that me at my very best is not anywhere good enough, I crave something that is. I desire something that is good and right. And God says, I will satisfy that longing with righteousness. The psalmist wrote in the 145th Psalm that God will fulfill the desires of those who fear Him. Remember Jesus when He was at the well talking to the woman? And He was talking to her about water. And He says, you drink from that well there, you're going to be thirsty again. But He says, if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. He was telling her, you will be satisfied. You will be filled. And the woman says, you don't have any water. You don't even have anything to get water from. Where are you going to get this water from? And He was talking about this, this same thing that Jesus was talking about in this area. He's saying, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God's righteousness, you will be filled. Number five, God blesses the merciful. Now the next three, five, uh, five, six, and seven, the merciful, pure in heart, and peacemaker seem to be what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit within me. These are not things that I do on my own. These are things that the Holy Spirit develops within me. And Jesus said that those who are merciful are blessed. These are they who share God's mercy with other people because they have experienced God's extravagant mercy in their own lives. Remember, because we're the same people who realize that we're absolutely nothing. And we mourn over that. And we begin to crave righteousness. And we realize that God didn't squash me like a bug. He gave me mercy. He extended grace. He gives me this new life. And everything good about my life is because of what God did. It isn't because of anything that I did. And I recognize that that's the mercy of God. And I say, you know what? I can give you mercy. I have experienced mercy. I can give mercy. And the psalmist, I'm sorry, uh, Micah, uh, in his... In his uh, Old Testament book there in the prophecy there, he wrote that mercy is one of God's greatest attributes. In Micah 7.18, it says that God delights in showing mercy. And since God showed me mercy, I then show others mercy. Micah 6.8 also tells us that God requires mercy from His people as well. He showed you, O man, what is good to love mercy. Love mercy as the Father loves mercy. I have been blessed with mercy. Therefore, I am merciful and forgiving towards others. Ephesians 4.32 Even as Christ forgave. Number six, God blesses the pure. The pure in heart. As I pursue righteousness or hunger for righteousness through Christ, I become pure. Jesus is speaking here of an inward purity though, not something on the outside. During this time, the religious leadership had been consumed with, uh, with an outside religion. 
Remember, remember when the, the, the disciples were walking through the fields and they were eating corn without washing their hands? And they gave them a hard time. They said, why aren't your disciples in there washing their hands? And Jesus, Jesus said, uh, what goes in? It doesn't defile a man. It what comes out. It's what's inside. It's the inside of the heart. At another point, Jesus called them, he called them whited sepulchers. He said, you look really good on the outside. But on the inside, you're full of death and decay. You're full of dead men's bones. He says, you're, you're, you're so concerned with outside purity, ceremonial purity, ritualistic purity, but your inside is, is filthy. Jesus is saying here that those who are pure in heart are blessed. We read all throughout the Scripture that God is interested in our heart as well as the outside. Psalm 23, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. He tells us that a pure heart is required to approach a holy God. And as I crave God's righteousness, as I crave God's ways and what is right in His eyes, my heart is purified. My own agenda is removed and God's righteousness is replaced. Fills me. Of course, this is only done through the work of Christ. Number seven, God blesses the peacemakers. This is very similar to showing mercy in that when I have, because I have experienced mercy, I then show mercy. I have experienced the peace of God. I then seek to make peace all around me. James 3.18, it's a very interesting verse. It says that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And as I read that a bunch of times, I think, what in the world is saying? It's very confusing how he worded it. And I really study it and break it down and try to understand. And what he's saying there is that righteousness is what peacemakers sow. Peacemakers who are the same group of people are very interested in righteousness. And they sow righteousness uh, and, and they reap. Uh, it says that the harvest of righteousness or the fruit of righteousness is sown uh, in peace of them who make peace. Peacemakers crave righteousness and they seek to make peace. Romans 14, 19 teaches us to follow peace and pursue after it with other people. In the book of Ephesians, we don't have the time to look there, but read through especially Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Paul wrote to the Gentiles about how they had found peace with God, but also by finding peace with God, he had brought them within a community of believers and he had made them unified with the others in the body of Christ and he goes on in chapter 4 he he talks about striving to maintain their peace and their unity with one another that's what peacemakers do we don't look to stir things up we look for peace Jesus says that peacemakers are blessed because they will be called the children of God sons of God and that's what Paul was expressing in Ephesians the body of Christ should be, it is known, it should be known for its peace, for its unity, for the way that we dwell at peace. As he says, I think Paul says, as much as, life, as, much as possible within you, live at peace. We love peace. Number eight, God blesses those who are persecuted. This is eight and nine. He says there in, in uh, verse number 10 there that they're persecuted for righteousness sake. And then in verse number uh, 11, they're persecuted for his name's sake, for his sake. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of put those together. These last two beatitudes. Jesus said that I can expect persecution. And I notice it comes right after I expect to, I seek to make peace. I'm trying to make peace, but notice what he says. Expect persecution. Make peace, expect persecution. Because this is what's going to happen, and there's two of them. You're going to be persecuted because you seek after righteousness, because I hunger and thirst for it, and so that's what I'm going to go after. 
but expect to be persecuted because the world doesn't want righteousness. The world doesn't want what God wants. The world wants what? Well, what did you want before you came to Christ? You wanted what you wanted. You wanted to do what felt good and what was convenient at the time and what had little consequences or whatever, or at least uh, uh, present consequences. I don't want someone else telling me what to do and I don't want to live under God's rule. And I and that's what that's what the, the sin nature in me does is it pushes away from everything that is God. Look around at our society today. We do everything to get God out of things. We've almost succeeded in getting God out of our churches. We've got God out of the schools. He's out of the government. He's out of our homes. He's almost out of our churches. He's going to be he's, he's, he's going to be pushed and pushed and pushed as far as we can as long as we're living in under the control of the flesh. And when I, as someone who is humbled and, and submitted to the will of God, as I try to live under God's rule, the world doesn't like that. And they push away from that. Notice what he says there in verse number Verse number 11, they persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. This is lies and insults and persecution, both physical and verbal. And, and, and this is what Jesus says, expect it. In those times, persecution was thought to be a uh, was thought to be God's punishing people. And what Jesus is doing here is he's reversing that idea and saying, listen, if you persecute it for the right reason, you know, we'll, we'll look at first Peter tonight. Uh, it's in your notes here, but we'll look at that tonight. But as I or this afternoon, uh, but uh, the 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 uh, there says, uh, make sure you're persecuted for the right reason, not because you're a big jerk. Okay, uh, be persecuted for righteousness' sake or for His name's sake. But when I'm persecuted for craving righteousness and seeking to live it out, when I suffer because I'm following Jesus, and remember, I'm blessed. Peter wrote in uh, in his in his letter there. But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you. He wrote also, if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rested upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. It's interesting then, at the very end of this message, we get to the very first command. He has not told us to do anything yet. Now we get to the last verse and he says, rejoice. Right after he said, you're going to be persecuted twice. And he says, rejoice and be glad, be exceeding glad. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Rejoice when you're insulted. Rejoice when you're lied about. Because though the present suffering may be may not be pleasant, there is a great reward waiting in heaven. These are the people to whom Jesus is speaking. These are the blessed people. If you're a part of the kingdom, you are. The blessed people. We are the blessed people, but we're not blessed because we are poor in spirit. We're not blessed because we're mourned. We're not blessed because we're persecuted. We're blessed because we are filled. We are blessed because the kingdom is ours. Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We are blessed because we will see God. We're blessed because we are called His children. And if you're not a part of the kingdom, if you're not a Christian, a believer this morning, you can be. It's not too late. It starts with the very first one. It starts with the emptying of self and realizing I am nothing on my own. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. I Nothing to the cross. I uh, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And it's all in what Christ did for me. And as I really understand that, as Christ reveals my sin brokenness and my sinful nature to me, then I realize I, I need someone to help me out. I need a Savior. By acknowledging your spiritual poverty by faith, turn to Christ. Trust in Him alone. You don't become part of the kingdom by checking off a list. This is for 
This is this is for only this list of beatitudes of happies is only for those who have come to Christ in true faith and repentance. But for those of us, I know most of you, I would say, I know I, we we you at least claim to be a part of the kingdom. We're blessed people, and for you, I say, rejoice. Just what Jesus said, lift up your heads. Don't walk around like you're one of the persecuted. Walk around like you're one of the blessed. Don't walk around like you have no hope. Walk around and live your life as you are blessed. Yes, we are poor in spirit, but we're blessed. Yes, we mourn, but we're blessed. We hunger for righteousness and we're blessed. And Jesus gives us hope here that the circumstances of our life will not last forever. It is pretty bad sometimes on this earth. But it's going to have an end. There's going to be a better day tomorrow. There, and, and tomorrow, it might not be Tuesday. It might not be next week. It might be one day when you cross into heaven. But it's going to get better. And this will not last forever. And something better awaits. All that is wrong will one day be made right. It's a confidence that we have there. It's a hope that is built up within us as we read Christ's words. Don't live like you've forgotten who you are. Live like the blessed person God is amazing.